MSW Media. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello. Welcome to episode 110 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, March 1st. I'm your host, Pete Strzok. Hey, Pete. I'm Allison Gill. Thanks to all the patrons, by the way, for your amazing feedback for me and Pete's first bonus episode this weekend. Uh, and per usual, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to our new and returning patrons. We'll start. By the way, when you sign up, it's it's a buck an episode. Uh, you can give us whatever name you like, like a pub trivia thing, and and we'll we have to read it. So here we go with Ag. Primatic, I don't know if that's AG or AG, Peggy Kittle, Don Stevens, Cheryl Gomes, Andrea Milsom, Left Rudder, nice, Linda B. Rostad, Mark Wartman, Alyssa F., Lucia Stern, Adan Tejada, Kaz Komen, Diego Navarro, Sarah Cork Henderson, Bri- uh, Brian Boddy, Mary Milosevic Grizzle, Gail Markham, Emily Ver- Verheen, Corey Jacoby, and JJ in DC. Hello! So if you want to join us, head to patreon.com slash aisle45pod for the ad-free feed. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Thank all of you so much. Now, we have a lot to cover today, including a brand new just-in filing in the Dominion defamation case against Fox News and a civil forfeiture complaint against Victor Vexelberg, which was filed by the Department of Justice. Oh, poor Victor. What's what's an oligarch to do? Uh, so knew. many U.S. properties, so many <laughs> Hamptons, luxury estates, and brownstones in Manhattan. Just a sad, sad day. Yeah, I remember when people were complaining about the uh, cost of the Mueller investigation. I'm like, dude, we made money on those Manafort <laughs> forfeitures. <laughs> just on Manafort. Just <laughs> on Manafort. Let alone, yeah, gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, totally. All right, let's kick this off with an absolutely astounding new filing from Dominion in the Fox News defamation case. A little bit of background. Dominion company that makes voting machines, filed a $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox. Last week, we got the explosive motion for summary judgment from Dominion, where we learned what all the Fox News hosts were really saying behind our backs, behind the scenes. And then Fox filed their motion to dismiss. But today, we got the responses to those filings, where both sides get to file their replies to these motions. A lot of stuff in here, Pete. Yeah, it is. And, you know, if the prior uh, filing from Dominion made you understand just the depth of the lies that Fox was telling and how much they knew it, all this does is just provide more information about that. And just, you know, the absolute contempt, one, that Fox held their viewers in. And two, it was like the inmates were running the asylum. Just time and time again, you can see this pervasive fear that they say the first negative thing about Donald Trump and they'd lose views, they'd lose money. And at the end of the day, having those lies to keep people coming back and listening to support Trump was more important than telling the truth. I mean, it's astounding. And I, you know, I'm still going through it before we, uh, you know, right up into the uh, going live here. I was reading through it and still haven't gotten through it, but it's just astounding. 
Yeah, it's like 200 pages. And, you know, you're talking about the money part here. They were so worried. There's all these emails back and forth about losing viewers to Newsmax, losing viewers to OANN. And when asked why Fox continued, this, by the way, includes deposition, uh, parts of depositions from people like Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch and Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House, who sat, sits on the board of the parent company of Fox, um, and Ms. Scott, who I believe is an executive there. Uh, but when asked why Fox continued to platform uh, like Mike Lindell, for example, uh, Rupert Murdoch said, well, it's not red or blue, it's green. Basically <laughs> insinuating it's about money, right? Yeah. And it's like, dude, aren't you, you know, and he said at the same time, he's like, well, he acknowledged that numerous Fox hosts had what he called or had said, quote, endorsed at times the false notion of a stolen election. And, I, you know, all these things, it's like, dude, weren't weren't you the man in charge? Aren't you? You're, you're saying all these things were bad and wrong and lies were being told and people were coming on. Aren't you? Doesn't the buck stop with you? Aren't you the bajillionaire head of this entire enterprise? And, you know, he's he's throwing all these people under the bus. But it just again, it just it goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. And, and actually, right after the election, um, he called Mitch McConnell. Murdoch called Mitch McConnell and said, could you guys tone it down and not spread these election lies? And apparently that didn't happen. And one of the more explosive pieces of news here was that Rupert Murdoch gave Jared Kushner access to confidential information about Joe Biden's ads before they aired. He showed them to Kushner before they went public. Right. And some of the things that came out, it's the showing this really tight link between Fox News on the one hand, the hosts, as well as people who were in and around Trump. There was that. There were this this guy, Raj Shah, who was the head of what the, you know, the best, you know, 1984 euphemism ever, the brand protection unit. He used to work in the Trump White House as an aide. And he told other, he told Lachlan Murdoch and Viet Dinh, who was like the, the in-house, uh, one of the in-house counsels, we can't call the election for Biden, because if we do, we're going to get hit really, really hard by the right. And it's almost all these things. It's not only the lies, it's all these very close, intimate links to the Trump administration. And it's almost like, you know, I I don't think many people are going to be surprised by this hearing it, but like Fox was like this de facto propaganda arm of the Trump administration. They, there were all these lies. They knew where they were lies. They were sharing it with the Trump administration directly. They were hiring people who used to exist in the, uh, in the administration. And just this tight coordination at the expense of the truth is astounding in, in some of these quotes. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, Russian state television. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Russia, or if you go in like any totalitarian regime, like go and read like some of the stuff, you know, on the on, on the better side of things, you know, Xinhua or something in China, but on the worst side of things, you know, North Korean television, where they're up there screaming their support for dear leader and, you know, whether he's launching 70 missiles or whether he's gone out and hit, you know, 14 hole-in-ones and an 18 round uh, round of golf. It's, it's the same sort of deification of somebody. And you see in these, all these quotes, they create this monster of their base and they're they're afraid of them they don't want to cross them on the one hand there's you know it's i think primarily money driven they don't want to lose the viewership but time and time again you see all the reference of well we don't want to lose we don't want to upset the viewers we don't want to create any sort of problems mm -hmm. yeah and and they knew that too and Paul Ryan, who was on uh, uh, the board of the parent company for Fox, said in a deposition that these conspiracy theories are baseless. Um, should We should labor to dispel conspiracy theories when they pop up and told Rupert Murdoch uh, Fox News should not be spreading conspiracy theories. So he kind of saw the writing on the wall early on, but, you know, warning like we, we could get a lot of legal trouble here. Right. But then, you know, to that point, you know, he on the one hand, he saw that and understood it and voiced that concern. But did he go public? No. Did he resign his spot on the board? No. I mean, there are people that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make a note of this. But at the end of the day, if it's going to keep me from getting my monthly retainer or whatever it is that they're paying him to be on the board, you know, I'm not going to make a move. So I, I just, you know, on the one hand, Paul Ryan said and tried to do in some to some extent the right thing. But all these folks at the end of the day, you know, it was, and you know, everybody, Rudy, everybody's favorite. There's this Rupert Murdoch at one point says, you know, hey, Rudy was out there. He was saying all these lies. Could you have stopped him? He's like, well, I could have, but I didn't. So it's just, you know, like Paul Ryan, like everybody else, seeing something going wrong, 
or being false, knowing that it's wrong or knowing that it's false, maybe making a half-hearted attempt to say something, but at the end of the day, just getting steamrolled by this, this just parade of lies. Yeah, this money machine. And, and this next one is actually um, really chilling. Uh, and I think is one of the other big uh, points that, you know, one of the bigger news items that's coming out of, of this filing. On January 5th, right, the day before the insurrection, Rupert Murdoch and Miss Scott discussed whether Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram should say some version of the election is over. Biden won. Uh, he hoped, I'm quoting now from the filing, he hoped those words would, quote, go a long way to stop the Trump myth that the election was stolen, unquote. Scott told Murdoch, quote, privately, they're all there, meaning the hosts, they all know, it's these are lies. Privately, they're all there, but we need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers. So nobody made a statement. And the next day was the attack on the Capitol. Right. And how many of those folks who dissent, you know, the, the, the ground level folks, the muscles, not the, you know, not the Proud Boys, not the Oath Keepers, not the people who organize it, but the people who were just encouraged or felt motivated to get in a car, or hop on a bus and come to protest. That's the core. That's the base that are listening to all these lies. And so whether it's January 6th, whether it's the attack on, you know, Nancy, on, on Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, whether it's the attack on some, you know, FBI field office in Cincinnati or, you know, threats made to judges, all of these things go back to the sense of grievance and the sense that there were, you know, this this illegal activity, this voting fraud, all these lies that Fox was propagating. In so many ways, you can draw the line from those falsehoods to this sense of, you know, righteous anger and indignation by Trump supporters who then take action. And in this case, you know, the day, like you said, the day before January 6th, they thought about saying something knowing they should have said something and yet decided not to. And instead we get, you know, an insurrection. And it was, you know, and after that, there's, there's this January 12th, you know, where Rupert Murdoch, going back to Paul Ryan again, and he tells him, well, the insurrection was, quote, it was a wake-up call for Hannity, who's been privately disgusted by Trump for weeks, but was scared to lose viewers. Mm. And I, But did Hannity ever, has he ever since, said a word no. about being disgusted by Trump. No, no. And, and I have to wonder, too, if any of these people who've been arrested and, you know, charged, put in jail, given probation, uh, pled guilty to attacking the Capitol on January 6th, can, you know, depending on what happens in this particular defamation case, can they turn around and sue Fox News? I mean, this seems like it could open up a floodgate of, of legal ramifications for for fox i mean knowing that all this is out there if, if you were brainwashed by fox news well i watched a lot of fox news we saw a lot of that in these defendants uh you know talking to the judges trying to you know show showing remorse i don't know what i was thinking i was caught up in the moment we heard a lot and i was listening to fox news at the time i i, I was told that that Fox News told me the election was stolen. The president told me the election was stolen. And I mean, that's not a defense for, you know, committing a crime. We've learned because, you're, you know, you can't commit a crime because of that. Uh, but, you know, maybe there's there's room for civil action for these folks. I don't know. Yeah, I think for sure. And I, I'm sure there are good defense attorneys as well as potential, you know, plaintiff's attorneys who are looking on the one hand exactly that saying, OK, whether or not I bring a suit against Fox when it comes to sentencing, when it comes to my trial, can I say my poor, you know, 28-year-old Trump supporter who lives and breathes Fox News every day that he really felt that there was something horrible that had happened and that, yes, he shouldn't have done this, but he believed what he was seeing on the news. He believed what he was hearing from Donald Trump. And so not saying he's not guilty, but you should go leniently on him because he just believed these things, which clearly were lies. But how is he supposed to know it? Because Fox, Fox knew it and ignored it. And then I also wonder if you are one of the D.C. police officers, one of the Capitol police officers who were assaulted by this crowd and this crowd and you can show, OK, in some ways, because defendants are saying, I believe Trump, I believe what I heard on Fox. That's why I came to the Capitol. That's why I engaged in violence. Is there some sort of path for them as plaintiffs? to go after Fox for damages because, you know, they caused, if they can show to some extent that they caused this group to believe this wrongdoing that they knew to be lies, which then led to the violence on January 6th. Is there some opening there? But, I, you know, I'm sure there are 
attorneys who are, you know, much more equipped to, to think about that than, than I am, you know, kind of considering whether or not there's a route there. Yeah. Well, and if I'm attorneys for the plaintiffs in like the Blasingame case, which is some of the Capitol Police officers suing uh, Donald Trump, uh, I, I would do an amended complaint um, to, to add Fox News to that on it. You know, personally, that's what I would. I would do that in, in, with, with these in light of these revelations. Um, and and here's here's one a bit that uh, where a redaction is kind of more interesting than what's not redacted. And this goes to what you were saying, Pete, about being in touch with Trump. Uh, and, and this is I'm reading here from the filing on November 8th. Right. This is the day after they declared for Biden. Bartiromo brought Sidney Powell onto her show to air the false claims about the Dominion voting machines. The Fox platform gave Powell the stamp of credibility and the distribution of her bullshit message. Right. I'm paraphrasing that. Uh, goes on to say, and while Trump was widely known to be a voracious consumer of Fox News, Bartiromo did not leave anything to chance. Redacted, redacted, redacted. So did Bartiromo contact Trump? Like why? And why would that be redacted, Pete? I don't know. I mean, that's a good catch on your part. I think it certainly implies that whether or not she, it, it, it says she didn't, right? It wasn't Fox didn't leave anything. Bartiromo did not leave anything to chance. So the implication is whatever's coming is something she did. Now, whether she reached out to Trump, which I think is the most likely, whether she reached out to Mark Meadows or somebody around him to say, hey, turn it on. I think what's redacted is clear that there was some attempt made to reach somebody, either Trump or people around him. Now, whether that's redacted, that's a good question. I mean, some of it may be in the context of during a deposition where there was subject to a protective order that one of the parties, either she or somebody on the other side who received a call from her, didn't didn't agree to lifting the um, the protected nature of that statement. But I, I think your read's exactly right. I think the most likely you know, event is she called Trump. Now, I, don't, I doubt Trump said, oh, yes, she called me. But is it possible that, you know, Jared or Ivanka or Mark Meadows or, you know, somebody in the White House said, oh, yeah, I remember him. I remember her calling him or somebody like it could be too. Maria Bartiromo was executive producer or staff assistant or somebody after the show is in her deposition in this lawsuit or his deposition in this lawsuit says, oh yeah, I remember the boss actually called Trump and they had a conversation and she told him to tune in. And that person doesn't want, or the, you know, somebody doesn't want their name released. So probably it is likely to protect the source of that information. I would think it is likely to be a third party, not Bartiromo, not Trump and or Meadows, but somebody who's telling the Dominion in this case about that communication that occurred. But that's, I mean, that's a guess. But to me, that makes sense given the, given what they left right before that. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I just, I just thought that was really weird. Like she didn't want to no, leave anything sure. to chance. Oh, well, okay. Um, and back to uh, Viet Den, who's the lawyer general counsel for Fox at the time, he confirmed that responsibility for publication extends up and down the chain of command. And those quote, with the power to exercise control had an obligation to prevent guests from telling lies when asked about that. So he said that. And when we get to the fact checkers, this was an interesting bit too. Fox's internal research department called the brain room. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a, in, in the land of blind people, the one-eyed man yeah. is king, right? Yeah. That's, that's a think about the, the brain room. Let's take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. There's always okay, just a, one brain in the room. Okay. Um, <laughs> Quote, fact-checked the allegations and debunked the charges against Dominion, but Fox kept airing them. And then Fox subsequently canned the Brain Room members, fired them. Right. And to the point, if you're trying to show that Fox knew and what their intent was, I mean, A, the Brain Room did fact check these and debunk them. So they knew they went out, they tried when they tried to do the right thing, when they tried to arrive at the truth, they found it. And then everybody not only disregarded it, but then they canned them all. So, I, you know, if you were trying to show, again, going back to the whole purpose of the lawsuit from Dominion's perspective, if you're trying to show malice, if you're trying to show reckless disregard for the truth, that's what, this is what that looks like, right? Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not like, oh, I, I read the papers and so I should have known it. No, you had a group whose specific job it was to go out and fact check and find the truth. They, in fact, did their job found the truth, 
and you then ignored it, and then you fired them all. So it, it again, from the from an evidentiary perspective, I, I don't. I mean, I, I to me, you know, who knows what'll happen in a in a trial? But I, Dominion's case seems so strong, and you know, defamation is hard to prove. But this, my gosh, just piece evidence after evidence after evidence. All these statements are just so damning from a from a legal perspective, from a moral perspective, from you know whatever any number of perspectives. But you know, Dominion's just, I think, is sitting in a strong, strong position right now. Yeah, no, I, I concur. And then there's just a couple more things about firing people. We know Murdoch, uh, now we know that Murdoch had urged Dobbs's firing because, quote, he was an extremist. C- crazy Uncle Lou, right? <laughs> <laughs> but only after the, well, after the election, because Dobbs had Trump's support and his dismissal could lead to viewers abandoning Fox. So he kept the extremist on the air and didn't fire him until later because he was afraid to lose viewers. And he suggested longtime VP Bill Sammons is firing after the Arizona call. Remember how Fox was the first to call for Arizona? Said that firing him, he did that because it was a big message with the Trump people. So a lot of these firings, the brain room, Dobbs and and Trump, whether he was not firing them or firing them, was to please Trump people. Right. And let, you know, kind of the final <laughs> A observation on this, don't. Har- to the extent anybody is harboring any illusions, this isn't about the Republican Party. This is about the cult of personality around Donald Trump. This is about followers who are his followers. These are not Republicans. These are not MAGA folks. These are people who are loyal to Trump. And everything they'll do with their ad revenue, with their viewership, it is all going to appease them and keep them tuned in. And it's not, that's it. Pure and simple. I, you know, I just keep thinking about like, you know, Trump's. I, I go back time and time again when he's, you know, like the the speech on the six early on where he's like, take out the mags. They're not here to hurt me. Mm. I mean, that's all. They're this is the crowd. They are Trump's people. They are not the Republicans' people. They are not anything other than his followers. And it is almost you read these terrified Trump executive after another, after announcer, you know, Hannity, disgusted, but unwilling to say anything. They're all terrified of Trump and his supporters. Yeah. And they'll do anything to keep them appeased. And it's disgusting. And I hope they end up paying billions and billions of dollars for it. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I mean, I think Dominion has a really strong suit here. You were saying that you you also think so. Do you think it's a $1.6 billion suit? I mean, Fox's only real defense here is First Amendment. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think it's, I don't know if it gets to 1.6, but I think it could break a billion. And I mean, I think, you know, the one thing is that, you know, one, Fox does have the money compared to like suing Donald Trump. I mean, despite his claims about how wealthy he is, he doesn't liquidity wise, I you know, I, he doesn't have much money at all. But Fox, Fox does. And I think, you know, when we looked at kind of the, in 2016, sort of like the whole voting infrastructure in the U.S. and all the ins and outs of how it's done and who sells things. Every county has different solutions, but at the end of the day, I mean, I think I mentioned this maybe last time or on a different podcast with you. They're not, they're like three or four producers in the United States. That's it. So every single county and state who are doing things differently at the end of the day, they've got ESNS, Dominion, Smartmatic, and I forget the, the, the fourth, like we vote or something like that. But your choices are limited and everybody has to buy something. And every other democracy around the world who's looking to the United States, who does a good job of it, who if they're buying it, you know, if you're in Italy or Brazil or France or wherever the case may be, you've heard the stuff about Dominion. So I think, you know, Dominion can probably make a strong argument about market share that they've lost because of all these defamatory statements. When you add on, and I don't know how you calculate this, like, all the physical threats to employees and folks showing up at businesses and homes and everything like that. There's a lot of there's a lot of harm there. Yeah. And I'm also interested to see if there's other prayers for relief. Like Fox has to remember when the Smartmatic stuff, they had to go on and make a statement and, you know, um, that, you know, be great if all all four of them just had to get on all at one time and, you know, put on dunce caps and say, we lied to you or something, you know, just something fun and then do the worm, you know, I don't know. I, I'm just coming up with stuff. But, you know, I joke, but this is very, very serious propagandizing. And it's modeled after what we see in state television from 
autocracies around the world, which is where this autocratic creep comes from, right? Denounce the the press. Uh, The military is woke. Uh, and you know, it's the great replacement theory, which is the cause of a great many people who went to January 6th to attack the Capitol is their fear of the great replacement theory. Uh, this whole ID ideology we see from Fox where, you know, in, in East Palestine, Ohio, well, you know, we, the, the, the white folks are being left behind and, you know, that just that whole sort of narrative, that fear that, and then, you know, you add this election, these election fraud lies on top of it. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, that's just, it seems so textbook to me. I'm, I'm, I just don't understand how other people can't see it. Uh, we, we've seen it in so many other countries. Ukrainians must be looking at us like, what are you, new? Yeah, no, exactly. And what worries me is that, you know, it's not, this isn't OAN. It's not some kind of weird fringe, you know, Alex Jones, Infowars. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny. It is still, you know, for a lot of people who aren't, you know, following the DC bubble or, you know, kind of it's following the number stuff one closely. news station. Yeah, well, yeah, it's absolutely right. And you've got, you know, the popular wisdom is, oh, CNN's kind of centrist, MSNBC's a little bit to the left, and Fox News is a little bit to the right. And when you look at, the, as you said, the number one watched, you know, Tucker's, I think, on top of all of it, but when you break down the networks on top. But what worries me is all the people, like every... And some of it was like Jack Keane has this comment where he writes in, he was a, a retired army general. When I was in the military and the army, he was actually at the 101st Airborne Division. He was the division commander way back then, which was a long time ago, like mid nineties. And he writes in essentially like really saying, hey, there's real significant um, voting fraud issues here to Murdoch. And Murdoch's like, well, yeah, but you know, we gotta, we gotta back off from Rudy because Rudy's crazy essentially. But what worries me is how many army mess halls have Fox News turned on? How many naval vessels at sea have Fox News on in the you know the mess hall or the cafeteria, whatever the mess, whatever they call it on a ship? How many offices in the FBI or at the Pentagon or DHS or police departments all around the U.S. setting aside the general population? How many folks, because they are a little conservative, tend to believe in law and order, have the network tuned on? Where now we know just lie after lie after lie was being propagated in the interest of Donald Trump. And what's the impact of that on not only just America in general, but the America that carries weapons, the America that can arrest you, the America that, you know, has access to guns and explosives and tanks and everything else. Oh, yeah. It was always Fox was always on at the VA when I was working there. It was always on at the VA. Right. And that's what, you know, and I get it because it was like in general, like as a, as a army guy, as a law enforcement officer, I mean, just when it came to issues that I cared about as an army officer, as a law enforcement officer, usually historically... Fox is kind of, you know, going to have the more conservative, sympathetic take on those issues. And so I get it. And I get why, you know, at the VA, sure. I mean, what would most vets want to listen to? Turn on Fox. And so what, how does that, you know, it's one thing if you're on their news during the day, (laughs) but then if it stays on at eight o'clock and, you know, and then in comes Tucker and then in comes Hannity and then in comes Laura and then Sunday morning, let's turn it on. And there's, you know. Marie Bartiromo and Judge Janine, if she's going to be sober in the morning, maybe. Yeah, Yeah, allegedly, right? So I bet they were like, let's just put her in at noon because she won't be drunk from the last night and she hasn't started drinking yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right, your daytimes are mornings only before the yeah. Um, But no, you're right, and that is that that is why that is one of the reasons why authoritarian regimes have state media. Mm-hmm. That's because you can push out this propaganda and there are, you know, huge chunks of the population. That's all they consume, not because they don't know that they should be looking for a choice. It's just on. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. 
He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. And it's there, and so okay, well, they probably exaggerate, but I'm gonna I'm gonna buy into this, wittingly or not, a lot or a large portion of it. And and I worry about that because Yeah. And I don't see any I don't see any sign it's gotten better. No, and and that's all coming from the party where we get a lot of Russian money pumped into. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that and some, uh, let's see, we got some, uh, well, you know what, I'll let you tell it because this is, this is your wheelhouse, but we're going to talk about Vladimir Voronchenko and Victor, Vex- Victor Vexelberg right after this uh, quick break. Everybody stick around. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it. Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin, spies and mobsters, and so many traitors! Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. Hey everybody, welcome back. We have some more incredible patrons to thank. We had 35 new patrons, new and returning patrons this week. So that's very cool. So thanks to Ben Mosoir, David Gray, Emily Browning, Emily Trussell, Celinda Arino, Dory Oberg, Shauna Sweet, Romy Baker, Ferret Maestro, very cool name, Carol Hughes, Rena Ratkovich, Tristan Walker, Maureen McCleary, Julianne Horn, and Dereliction of Duty, D-O-O-D-Y, Pete. Uh, clever. Thank you all. That's fantastic. So, we, so let's talk about Russians, which is always a good thing to talk about. Do you know about. anything uh, about Russians? Are you familiar uh, with some, yeah. some, and yeah, especially this knucklehead that we're going to talk. So this past so Friday, wait, so, but you, I mean, you do right. So everybody, I do, out, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no. So when I was, in, you know, in, check out the it, first few chapters of Compromised, a book by Pete Strzok. Right. You can read about ghost stories. Maybe watch The Americans. You can get a little bit of insight into what Pete knows about Russians. A little bit. And it was always interesting, like what we're seeing now, just the overlap between the former Russian government, you know, Vladimir Putin or leaders before him and the intelligence services, but increasingly just this really muddy overlap between what the government is doing and what all these sort of soft power, whether they're oligarchs, whether they're intermediaries between oligarchs and the formal state power, you know, everything from the Internet Research Agency who was run by, you know, this guy Prigozhin, who's deep in the Ukraine conflict with the the Wagner mercenaries, was also bankrolling some of the contractor work, you know, doing the cyber sort of social media manipulation. But we see it also on the oligarch front with everything from Oleg Deripasko to Vexelberg, which we're just going to talk about. But how is Eric Prince long... still walking free? By well, the God, way? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm, I keep wondering whether or not he's going to get wrapped in all this Project Veritas stuff that's going on. But I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily hopeful about that. But it's, uh, He's he's living a charmed life um, because in well take a detour on Eric Prince I know there was some question that he was 
at least reportedly under investigation for um, selling munition, prohibited sales of munitions, you know, essentially like I think taking Cessnas and private aircraft and putting weapons on them. And, you know, as soon as you weaponize an aircraft, it's subject to um, arms export restrictions and laws and that he had sold, I'm trying to remember if it was Libya perhaps or somebody else, but there was at least this burst of reporting two, three years ago, independent of all the meeting in the Seychelles with the Russians and this stuff that at least for the, you know, arms trafficking, he was imminently going to get wrapped up and, you know, of course nothing happened. So he's both, I think, smart, has good attorneys and is probably very difficult to pin anything on. But I mean, he's been, it's been quiet though. I haven't heard his name in a while. Yeah, I'd shut up too if I, if I was Yeah, well, him, they're, 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 there's this group, right? It's like him, Victoria Tonsig, Joe DeGenova. DeGenova, mm-hmm. Who, they have disappeared. I mean, to their credit, I th- I'm sure an attorney saying, shut the hell up, because at least DeGenova and Tonsig, I think, both had their electronics seized um, as part of the, you know, the Rudy round of, of search warrants that went out. But they were, you know, again, going back to Fox, it seemed like every every other weekend you could turn in, t- t- tune in either Bartiromo or Uncle Lou, and they would be on there, you know, complaining about the deep state, but they've fallen off the public face of the earth. I'm just, I hope they got rolled up in the, in the January 6th stuff. Anyway, we're getting off track. No, no, well, so go back. So, so Victor Vexelberg, he is a, a Russian oligarch. And the reason that's important, this past Friday, the U.S. is seeking to seize six luxury properties in New York and Florida valued at $75 million tied to oligarch Victor Vexelberg as it continues to pursue the assets of wealthy Russians a year after Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Now, for background, Vexelberg is an oligarch. He uh, at least currently is in charge of what's called the Renova Group, which is a, what, they've got aluminum concerns, they've got energy concerns, including petroleum, you know, interests in Russia, but it is a kind of conglomerated group that you know has a, a tremendous amount of wealth as well as uh, power and influence. Now, the prosecutors in Manhattan on Friday asked the court for forfeitures of the properties in New York City, Southampton, New York, and Fisher Island, Florida. I don't know anything about Fisher Island, Florida, claiming they're the proceeds of sanctions violations. I think that Jeb Bushes, I think the Bushes are from Fisher Island. At least that's what they say in The Birdcage, the movie. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's part of uh, fiction of it, but uh, yeah, yeah, Fisher Island, Florida. Uh, I was going to say the, the fact that bushes. I've never heard of it probably means it's very, very nice. You know, I've heard of like, uh, you know, kind of like Palm Beach or the, you know, what's the place <laughs> where all the retirees near where, you know, the big Trump standout where all the Republican voter fraud went on the village, uh, the, the villages, villages yeah. isn't that the, mm-hmm. yeah, down there, but I'll look it up. Um, now the government also claims they're involved in, uh, international money laundering by an individual named Vladimir Voronchenko, who was charged this month. And then this from the Southern District of New York uh, complaint, or the press release about the complaint, quote, with the filing of this complaint, the United States sends a strong message to those who violate sanctions and engage in money laundering that the United States will use every available tool to forfeit criminal proceeds and will use that money to help our allies in Ukraine under the newly enacted law. That's the cool part, that they're giving it to Ukraine. Because, you know, just recently, last week, you and I both know that they seized, the the Ukrainians seized uh, Rusal, right? Deripaska's assets. And we're using that to, well, first of all, he's making aluminum that was making parts to, you know, for weapons that were being used against Ukraine. But then they, you know, they seized this stuff from Ian Plus and and Rusal to, to uh, to help people who are impacted by the war. Yeah, absolutely. And he was, you know, it's funny because he had, there was an FBI search of, he has a residence here in Washington, D.C., just off Mass Ave on uh, Embassy Row. Uh, and the the FBI went in and searched that, did a day-long search and, and took out a bunch of uh, information on whether that was assets for forfeiture or not. I don't know. But I mean, Deripaska is a bad dude. And, you know, I, the question is, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts about, you know, do... At the end of the day, do sanctions really work in terms of changing behavior? I'm sure none of these oligarchs are happy about it, but I still, in the back of my mind, have some question about whether or not it drives has really any like efficacy in driving behavior change. I don't well, know if, what you think. If one of the goals is to piss off the oligarchs and make them angry at Putin for wrecking their lives and taking away their money and yachts and boats and sex coaches and whatever the hell else, 
uh, then it might because, I mean, you know, we don't have teams of assassins who go in to, and, you know, take out these kind of leaders. And, and uh, you know, we we're sending as much aid as we can. We're not yet sending F-16s. Maybe we should train people up on that and then send them over because it could take four or five months to do so. But the the thought has always sort of been lurking behind, you know, lurking in the back of everybody's minds that it, it could be a, an ouster of Putin from his own oligarchs, right? Um, who are just so pissed that, you know, that we've got all their boats now. Yacht cops came and took their boats and, and you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of making it into just this one thing, but I mean, their, their entire wealth has been frozen and, and their assets are being seized and sold to help Ukrainians. And so that has to, to anger them. And if that's one way, you know, to pressure these oligarchs for a possible, to work on an ouster from within Russia, I mean, that seems to be like one of the best solutions we could, we could have. I think in in this in, in this, I mean, no nobody thought um, that Ukraine would last more than a couple of weeks, let you know, a few days, let alone a year now. And so the resolve and the the dedication to this fight, to preserving their democracy, to preserving their land, to preserving their people, has just been incredible, and their leadership. Um, from Volodymyr Zelensky has just been it, just amazing, just incredible to watch. And and I, you know, that we're you know we're helping, we're helping expand NATO, we're sending in weapons. All of this is is so extremely important. But you know how this war ends is Russia has to leave. That's it. That's the only way out of this because you, Ukraine shouldn't be handing over anything, annexing anything. And they've said as much. And so I think that's always sort of been in the back. Like maybe if we sanction the hell out of these oligarchs, there might be some discomfort from within. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, I think we have to do it. I, I don't think given that the option exists, we have to do it only because there are things to be seized. There are assets that can be converted and sent back to Ukraine to assist them. So it, it isn't something that you can leave alone. I do worry a little bit that when it comes to the, if the goal is regime change, if the goal is behavioral change or you know some combination of both, those people who are close enough to Putin are going to be the wealthiest and the most powerful. And I do worry, you know, it's like sophisticated crime in the US. I mean, you can pick up the, you know, the nickel dime drug dealer, you can pick up the low level white collar criminal, but when it gets to the really, really sophisticated, really, really wealthy criminal, it's very hard to do that um, because they have the resources to hide what they're doing, to hire good attorneys. And it makes, I, I see in some ways an analogous situation, like the prospect of somebody like Deripaska, even, even Vexelberg, the idea that, you know, are they going to be angry? Yes. Is this a significant amount of money for anybody, even if you're a, you know, approaching billionaire? Yes. At the end of the day, is the best sort of sanction or sanction implementing team going to be able to tease out the 20 layers of LLCs routing through Cyprus, routing through Panama, routing, routing through the Bahamas, through seven layers to be able to trace it back and say, okay, these, you know, $500 million worth of assets, we can go through these 17 layers and tie them to, you know, wealthy oligarch fill in the blank. I don't know. So again, I don't think we have, I think it's a good idea and necessary to do it. I do wonder at the end of the day, whether if it comes to like, who are the people who can reach out and touch Putin? Are these going to effectively reach out and touch them? I don't know, but we have to try. And you might as well, if you got a tool in the toolbox, use it. Because what's going on in Ukraine, you gotta, right? Yeah, and this klepto capture uh, task force is, you know, at the very least, we are seizing assets and turning that money into useful money for Ukrainians. So that's bottom level. Yeah, for sure. And we got a couple of quotes from the from the folks in that klepto capture task force. So HSI special agent in charge Ivan Arvelo said, quote, for years, Russia's weaponization of corruption has relied on opaque legal structures and Western enablers to move, hide, and spend stolen wealth, enriching its oligarchs and ultimately resourcing the war in the Ukraine. Now, what's interesting there is like the specific like tip to the Western enablers, because what I didn't see, I mean, I saw Voronchenko, I saw Vexelberg, but it's clear like the illusion in there is that, you know, people yet to come, presumably these Western enablers are also going to be subject to that. So, you mm -hmm. know, not only was this directly them, but I that quote to me, sort of felt like, you know, more to come. With yeah. This. And I, I just want to make clear to everybody, it, it, it 
this is quoted directly from DOJ website when they say the Ukraine. That's not us. That's direct quote from <laughs> yeah. from HSI special agent Ivan Arvello. <laughs> uh, and I will note, like the FBI gets it right. So no, no diss on HSI. But then when FBI acting special agent in charge Maggot Benham said, quote, the mission of the interagency task force klepto capture, I'm not sure about the name, but is what it is, is to enforce sanctions export restrictions, and economic countermeasures imposed by the United States in response to Russia's unprovoked military invasion of Ukraine one year ago. This civil forfeiture complaint is an example of the task force's ongoing work to fulfill this mission. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's good. And it's good to see, you know, HSI and the FBI always like to see good, you know, interagency joint work going on together here. And, you know, it's a lot of money and that's a lot of houses. And, you know, we'll see who, uh, you know, Go to, I guess, what do you do? You seize them and then put them up for auction and sell it to somebody, I guess. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how that works either. Um, I've never been to an auction where they were selling like Russian yachts and, and giant uh, brownstones. So <laughs> I'm always like, I'll take that Honda scooter. Um, yeah, they don't, I don't think they have anything like that. But a little bit of background on here. Basically, what was happening was uh, in April 2018, Department of Treasury's Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, designated Vexelberg um, as a special, a specially designated national SDN in connections with its findings, the actions of the government of the Russian Federation in Ukraine constituted an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security of foreign policy of the United States. So basically, they sanctioned him. They put him on the OFAC list. Now, prior to his OFAC designation, between 2008 and 2017, Vexelberg, through a series of shell companies, like you were mentioning before, acquired six real properties in the United States. Now, this Vorenchenko fellow, who is Vexelberg's close friend and business associates, he got a lawyer who practiced in New York in connection with the acquisition of the properties. And that lawyer managed the finances of the properties, including by paying common charges, property taxes, insurance, other fees, um, associated with properties in the U.S., dollar transactions from the attorney's interest on lawyer's trust accounts. So that that's an I-O-L-T-A, IOLTA account. Uh, so he was managing all this money uh, and paying all the you know real estate costs. But prior to Vexelberg being sanctioned or being designated uh, as a, on the OFAC list, between February 2009 and March 2018, companies owned by Vexelberg sent about 90 wire transfers, totaling about $18.5 to that IOLTA account. And at the direction of Voronchenko and his family member who lived in Russia, that lawyer used those funds to make various U.S. dollar payments to maintain and service the property. So this is just sort of the DOJ tracking where all the money went, who, who it went through, who it came through. Uh, and they said that the case is, is being handled by the office's Money Laundering and Transnational Criminal Enterprises Unit. And then they named the assistant U.S. attorneys who are, are working on the charge or, you know, in charge of that action. So that's the whole sort of background of, of how the money, where it's how they how it was ill gotten and how it was sent to this lawyer through this one guy and sent through all sorts of shell companies and then used to maintain these these real properties and so that's what's allowing them to seize those properties right yeah and i was just i was i pulled up the calculator because i was curious if you're curious if you're going to make 90 wire transfers of 18 and a half million dollars that works out to about just over two hundred thousand dollars per transaction so these aren't you know this isn't structuring you know a seven thousand dollar transfer and a 80, you know, a $2,500 transfer to get under some $10,000 reporting limit. These are sizable transfers. And all of that, all of that detail on attorney, the attorney, quote unquote, really makes me believe the quote unquote attorney is about to be the quote unquote indicted person. I mean, there's <laughs> there's a lot of detail in there that when you look at this is it, it, it is dealing in a way that appears to be designed to avoid detection by and with somebody who is a sanctioned individual engaged in activity that the attorney should have known he shouldn't have been doing. So it's certainly, you know, reading that, you know, this was a forfeiture order, but it certainly to me looks like, uh, you know, that that attorney at a minimum is potentially facing some some criminal liability down the line here. Yeah, along with their Western enablers, who I guess are probably real estate transaction folks in Hmm, Florida and New York. I mean, are we going to see Bayrock pop up? I mean, like, <laughs> you know, it's it's just it's it's very interesting that at, that that the uh, popular homes for 
uh, oligarchs in the United States are New York and Florida. I mean, we know about Rublovyev, uh, Rublovlev, I can never say his name right, uh, who bought the $100 mansion or $100 million mansion from Trump down in Florida. We know all the floors in Trump Tower that were bought by Russians and then sold for cash uh, after a year and for like half the price. Like all of this stuff um, just seems to always happen where Trump has properties. Now, I'm not saying they're connected, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are some common entities uh, between those two real estate folks. Yeah, and and for Vexelberg too. And talking about Trump, I mean, a lot of your listeners will will know this if they were following you back during the uh, Mueller Shirot days. But Vexelberg came to some sort of level of notoriety because when he and still is in charge of this Renova Group, Columbus Nova is a U.S. organization that, at least as of 2017, was listed as a subsidiary of the Renova Group. Columbus Nova was headed by a guy named Andrew and Trader. And, you know, this came out during the Mueller investigation and they subsequently changed Columbus Nova to, I think, Sparrow Group or something like that. But they, they changed the name because Columbus Nova was so toxic. But the they were friends and the way as described by Andrew and Trader, and I'm not, you know, gonna cousins, get into anything. Actually, yeah, right. There there's a relationship there and I'm not touching on anything that's not, you know, this is all what's been reported in the media. I'm not gonna talk about what was you know, going on behind the scenes oh, with man. Mueller that's that's not reda- unredacted in the report. But, oh, come you know, on. bottom line, there's, yeah, I'm going to spill it on right now. <laughs> Make some news. Um, no, but the, the, the question was, you know, is in fact this truly an independent organization within the United States? To what extent, you know, in Trader said, look, Vexelberg was my primary client. Like all the, by far and away, the things that I was doing, the money I had to invest was because of him. Yeah, I had other clients, but he was by far and away the big one. The reason this becomes very interesting is that Intrader put Cohen in contact with Vexelberg. Vexelberg came into town, met Cohen, certainly went and attended, I think, the inauguration with both Michael Cohen as well as Andrew Intrader. And so these links to Trump that were coming up as we were trying to understand what if any Russian connections exist between, or what connections, if any, exist between Russia and Trump, Vexelberg was a really critical um, point for us to look at. Oh, yeah, half and a million dollars was... went into Cohen's essential consulting uh, fund, along with, I mean, like AT&T and then some Novartis. I mean, a lot of companies put millions of dollars for, but they were basically buying access to Donald Trump. Right, and some of that's like, okay, so how do you how do you tease out I mean, it is kind of the unseemly but legal sort of process of American politics, right? I mean, you do have big business who are trying to, you know, get connections with and favor from the incoming administration. And that's just kind of the nature of the political system. And then the question was, okay, is this just a straight sort of commercial political transaction? You know, what are the laws if it's coming from a foreign entity versus a domestic one? To what extent? Because most oligarchs, you know, they're not. They are not organs of the Russian state, but the connections between most of the large oligarchs and the political power of the Russian state are significant, and they will act as proxies for each other both ways. And so trying to understand that was a real, a lot of effort went into that. So, you know, I don't, at least by the time I left, I don't think we had a complete understanding of everything Vexelberg did or didn't do. But, you know, seeing him pop up in this context, you know, I'm glad to see him sanctioned. He's a bad dude. He deserves to lose all these properties. And I hope he's angry. And, you know, hopefully, as you said, enough of these guys will be angry enough that they'll, you know, do something to Putin. Yeah. And um, we will keep everybody posted on this lawyer fella, um, Vladimir Voronchenko's lawyer, to see if he gets uh, rolled up in this, indicted, and if any of these, quote unquote, Western allies... Western enablers um, get rolled up in this. It'll be, it'd be very interesting to see uh, if they do asset forfeiture uh, stuff, if there's indictments, um, how, how it all plays out. But, you know, we'll keep an eye on it for you. Yeah, absolutely. And then one unrelated data point tease that I'll throw out there going back to our sort of uh, late week update last week. I saw today there's an Atlanta Journal-Constitution article that Fawny, which is the correct pronunciation they note in that article, like a fawn, like a deer, but not fanny, it's fawny. There are the sitting grand juries have a term of two months. 
There are two which expire at the end of February and another two are named at the beginning of March and they meet twice a week. And so if you're trying to like think about when charges might come, the question is, did she try and get, because she's got to introduce all her evidence and get everything in there. Did she try and rush that in before the end of this grand jury, which is tomorrow? Or is she waiting for the next grand jury, which is impaneled in early March? And they get again, sworn in on is, March 7th, Anna Bauer says. Oh, there you go. So if I were a betting person, I'd bet she's getting her ducks in a row, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, waiting for this two months that she's going to have these new grand juries rather than trying to, you know, cram it in. But the point being, if we're going to hear anything from this existing grand jury, their term is about to run out. So we're going to hear it soon. My guess, we're going to be looking at, you know, the next one. But, you know, if it's a two month term, March 7th through May 7th, right? So that's hopefully the window to hear something. Yeah. And I'll be on vacation uh, the week of March 6th, uh, which usually means something will happen. Oh, yeah. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> so, Fani, if you're listening. Um, no, all right. We'll, we'll find you. We will find you and drag you from the mountain beach <laughs> villa, wherever the hell you are. We'll drag you out to an emergency emergency an podcast. Undisclosed location. You can reach me by text, Pete, just so you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, there we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about that for sure. Uh, so everybody, thank you so much for listening to clean up on aisle 45. Thank you for being patrons, patrons. You make this show happen as do people who listen to this show for free. Thank you as well. We can't say thank you enough. If you want to become a patron, little as a buck an episode, you can do it at, uh, let's see, patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod, A-I-S-L-E four five P-O-D. We'll be back next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. And this is clean up on aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And, and this, this is, is how, how we win. win. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America 
on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.